0: You know, I've learned a lot uh, over the last few years, especially about expectations. When I got married almost 10 years ago, uh, that was a big lesson on expectations. You know, you come into a relationship with somebody with uh, hopes high and and, and big expectations, and on my end, uh, Annette in, in almost every way exceeded expectations, and I can say that truthfully. On uh, her end, I think she had me built up a little bit bigger in her, in her mind than, uh, than was the truth. And so there was some adjustment there. I was talking to somebody that was recently married last week, and he said, You know what I've, what I've been telling people? And he said, I don't know if this is the best thing or not, but he said, When people ask me how married life's going, I say, Well, it's an adjustment. <laughs> I said, That might not be something you want to tell your bride. But, um, but it is. It's, it's uh, expectations you go into, and, and then some are met, some are not met. And that can really affect... Uh, how you live in the in the present, how you feel. Uh, one thing that Annette and I do, when we do get to go out to eat, we're very different in what we choose. She can tell the, the waitress or the waiter what I'm going to order no matter where we go. She knows if we go to uh, this restaurant, I'm going to order a steak, or this restaurant, I'm going to order the chicken or whatever it is because I find something that I like, and that's why I go to that restaurant. I know what I'm going to expect. I know what I'm going to get. If I order that, I know that's what I like, and I'm going to be satisfied. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be able to enjoy it. She would rather go and look through the menu and say, you know what? I've never tried that. I think I'll, I think I'll order that. And sometimes it works out. Uh, but a lot of times she'll have these expectations of this great dish, and it'll show up, and you know, I'll ask her halfway through, well, how's, you know, how's the meal? Well, you know, it's okay not really what i expected and i said see you should have gone with what you knew yeah you should have gone with what you could expect and count on the same is true when we come to the scriptures and think about where things are going to end up where things are headed a lot of what we expect and our expectations will inform how we think and feel and act in the present and uh the good news that I hope we'll find today as we go through the scriptures is that what we have to look forward to and to expect will satisfy. Uh, it's extremely, extremely satisfying, and it informs the way we live today and feel and think today in a way that I think is, is very encouraging and, and motivating. So let's look at this uh, together today. There's three views, basically when you when you go to the scriptures of of where things are headed where things will end up when Jesus comes back one view we might call uh, for better or for worse we call it we might call it the escapist view that you know when when Jesus comes back the world's going to be totally destroyed and then we're going to be taken away and spend eternity somewhere else in, in heaven our life in the body's only temporary and the redemption is basically separation from, from, from this creation. Go somewhere else. Taken away. Um, escape. Let's escape. Let's get out of here. That's one view. Another view is a little bit different. It's uh, the annihilationist view. That when Jesus comes back, not only is he going to destroy this earth, but he's going to destroy this whole universe. And he's going to create something totally new. A whole new universe. A whole new place, uh, area for us to, to dwell and live. And then there's a third view. That we'll call the restorational view. That actually, when God comes back, when Jesus comes back, he's going to renew, to purify, to cleanse this world of sin. That there's a continuity between this and that. Just like there's a continuity between who Eric Ashley is now and who Eric Ashley will be when Jesus comes back. There's some differences, major differences, but there's some continuity. In the same way, there's a restoration. There's a continuity between the creation, the world now, and what will be. What I'm going to try to build a case for today, and then we'll talk about it in in, in different aspects in the weeks to come, is the case for the, for number three, for a restorational uh, end. But what Jesus is coming to do when He comes back is is not to to destroy and take us away somewhere else or to just, not to destroy and create something brand new totally new, but actually to come and to renew to restore his good his creation that he had created in the first place um, before we get to the scriptures though let me give you a couple of i'm basically going to build some reasons and it may be convincing it may not hopefully it will and we'll will uh will end up with uh, drawing some conclusions of how we can how it applies to us today but first thing that I think is is a a reason to to think and a reason for a restorational view of where things are headed is the idea that the Bible is one story that it's the Bible tells the story of the same God. It's not the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. He is one and the same God, and He deals similarly with with His people all the way through. Uh, a lot of times you'll hear people talking, well. That's that's an angry God. That's the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is love. But hopefully, as you study the Scriptures, you start to see, well, no. You know, when God judges, He does so for loving reasons. He does so because He cares for His people and for His creation. And so it's it's, it's the same God, same purposes. Um, Paul Tripp, in his book, Broken Down House, says that he... Went to visit his father-in-law one day, and his father-in-law said, Let's take a ride. I want to show you something that that I'm really excited about. And he said he got in the car with him, and and as he got going, he said his father-in-law started telling him about this new investment that he'd made. And he was thinking, Wow, this is going to be something really interesting. I can't wait to see what he's he's put his money, his effort, his energies into. He said as they... Started driving, they were going. They actually opposite the direction. That he, he figured they went not into the the outskirts of the city, but they were going more and more to the the, the inner city, uh, and and to worse neighborhoods and worse neighborhoods. And he said he pulled up next to a a house where the the yard the grass was was you know waist high. Um, the the house was was big, but you could barely even tell that it was still a house. Windows where you know shutters were hanging down, and the wood looked old and worn. Um, and he said. You know, father-in-law here. What are we? What are we doing here? He said, "Well, just come here. I want to show you something." He said. They walked in, and he said, "If you looked really, really hard, you could see as you walked through the old house what used to be a beautiful, beautiful dwelling place, but it was almost beyond recognition. It had become so dilapidated." And his father-in-law said, "This is what I just purchased." He said, I haven't told your mother-in-law yet, but um, I wanted to get your opinion and your thoughts on it first. And Paul said he didn't, he said he didn't know what to tell him because he's sitting there thinking, what in the world have you put your money into this for? And he, he said, I can, tell, I can tell Paul that you, you, you're not really excited about this. He said, let me just tell you what I'm thinking. Uh, anybody can start from scratch and build something new, but I see in this a, a glory a former glory that i want to resurrect that i want to spend my time renewing and he said over the years with lots of money lots of energy lots of time put into it it, it now is a beautiful beautiful dwelling probably even more glorious than its original um state and what what dr tripp says is that that's that's who our god is He's a God, if you read the, the, the story of Scripture from, from front to back, He's a God of restoration. He's a God who doesn't just give up on His good creation. He doesn't just leave it to be and let it run amok. But He's constantly involved and invested in moving things toward restoration. You see it in, uh, in the first Adam and then the new Adam. and You see it in the seed promised in Genesis three fifteen and 16 and what, what follows and how it's fulfilled. You see it in what we call covenant theology, the development of the covenants all through the scripture. It's one story of God um, preserving a remnant to redeem all of his creation. So that's the first thing, a story. Second thing, reason I, I would vote for a restorational view of where things are headed is the idea of death. The idea of death. Death is unnatural. At its very basic understanding, death is is abnormal. It's not the way things were created to be. A lot of times, you'll you'll talk to somebody and they're trying to be comforting to to somebody that has, has fears of death or or maybe experiencing a loss, and they'll say, "Well, you know, it's just it just we're just passing through, and, and you know, don't worry about it. We're going to some place better." And, and and I understand all of those comments are meant to encourage and comfort. Uh, for a a topic that is is many times scary, but it's scary for a reason. Uh, Genesis 3 and and Romans 3 and other passages talk about the reason death is, is scary, the reason we don't like it, is because it's not the way things were meant to be. Death is the ultimate consequence of sin, and sin is utterly abnormal and unnatural. It was not the way things were designed to be. So when we think of death, when we think of... of uh, my, I had a professor in seminary that used to say it this way. He used to say, I don't want to go to heaven. And we'd look at him and say, what are you talking about? And he said, well, I don't want to go to heaven. He said, don't get me wrong. I, I, I will go to heaven if I die today, and I'm, I would be excited about it. It'd be, be, we would be with Jesus. It would be great. But what I'm hoping will happen is that I won't die. I'm hoping Jesus will come back first and so I won't have to go through death because death is unnatural. Death is horrible. Death is a, a, a punishment, Is a consequence of sin. So that is, is more pieces of the puzzle. Now let's look at the scriptures. What do they specifically have to say? We don't have all the details, but we do have some things that we can draw on to fill out the picture. And First of all, I want to read 2 Peter 3. And just draw a few conclusions from it, and then look at a few other passages. 2 Peter 3, um, starting in verse 5. They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by, by means of these, the world then existed, was deluged with water, and perished. Now think about what he's talking about there. The, the world was deluged with water and perished. Anybody got an idea of what he's thinking about there? The flood? The flood. That's right. Um, By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Now you see language in there that many could use to back up their view of where things are headed. Let me tell you why I think this even backs up a restorational view. First of all. It's the context of the flood. It says here that the world was destroyed, deluged, and perished with the flood. Well, does that mean that the world as we know it went away? No, it's the same earth, right? It was destroyed, it was deluged, it perished with the water, but it didn't go away. It was washed clean so a new start could happen. And he says in the same way, there's a stronger cleansing agent coming. There's fire coming, and the Lord of uh, the world will be, will be in the same way cleansed with fire, an even stronger cleansing agent, so that all that's, that's not of the Lord, all that's bad, will be burned up, and only what's left will be that which is good, so that the Lord can can set up His kingdom in full. Um, so there's the idea of the context of the flood. That's that's crucial to understanding this passage. Secondly, this this passage uses words like destroy or expose. Um, But again, the idea, especially in context, is not destroy as far as annihilate, like it goes away forever. But the idea is one of purification, of renewal, of taking away all that's bad, destroying all that's bad, so that what's good can be upheld and multiplied. And again, it's fire, it's purification. So what is he talking about there? He's saying, in the same way, that the, the world was, was cleansed with the flood, one day, and it's a day that we, we don't know, it could be any time he's saying, be ready, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to cleanse this world with fire. And what's going to be great about that is that everything that is not of the Lord will be burned up, will be taken away, and only what is of the Lord will be left. Um, and we'll talk about more of, of, of what happens after that as well. Flip over, and, and, and again, we're still building our case, to First Thessalonians. It's a few, few books back. First Thessalonians chapter 4, here's some more clues. Uh, verse 13 of chapter 4 says, we do, not, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord. We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. If the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. say, well, Eric, that sounds to me very much like an escapist idea. We're going to be caught up, we're going to believe, we're going to go be with the Lord somewhere else. Well, let me try to challenge that just a little bit. There is spoken of here in this passage that those who die go to heaven. They go to another place. They're immediately with the Lord that the scriptures tell us in other places. And that is a glorious thing. But their bodies don't go. We put, their, we put people who, who die, we put their bodies in the ground. And it is a, again, it is a sorrowful thing, which is why we have funerals. Uh, because we miss them. And, but their spirit is with the Lord. Well, it says when Jesus comes back, He says, don't worry, brothers, who are worrying about these things. Those that have gone before you, who have passed, who have passed away, are with the Lord. They are happy right now. But they're going to come back with the Lord. They're going to have their bodies raised and transformed. And we'll talk specifically, we'll devote one of these times about what, what our new bodies are going to be like. But those bodies are going to be transformed and joined with that spirit who's been with the Lord. And the picture here is not that we'll all then just leave and go somewhere else, but the picture always when a king comes in, a conquering king into a city in the Scriptures, is always one who the city goes out to meet him in in, uh, in triumph and in, in a some sort of a parade type mentality, and they go and they join and, and the king comes with a lot of times leading captives and, and conquests and other things that they spoils of, of the war and there's a procession of outside of the city and and they, people have gone to meet them and then they process in and in victory into the to the city where celebration ensues and i'm The more I study this passage, more and more confident that that is exactly the picture that Paul is painting here. Just like he's saying, Thessalonians, just like you see the Caesars do when they have a victory and everybody runs out of the city and they greet them and there's parades and all kind of fanfare. And then they come back into the city and celebrate in the same way when Jesus comes back. He's going to come back with all your loved ones who've gone before. Their bodies are going to be resurrected and transformed We're all going to be caught up in the air to meet our our coming king, our conquering king. And then we're going to rejoice and celebrate as we come back down and he sets up his kingdom in full here. It's a beautiful picture. It's an exciting picture of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. A lot of times folks that hear and think about that passage in Thessalonians also think about the passage in Matthew chapter 24 that says this. Um, Concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father only. As were, again, here's the flood, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And it goes on. This is a passage that is one of the theme verses of, of the whole Left Behind series of books. Um, and I don't know if you've read those, but I think the author of those books made a critical mistake on his assumptions before he started writing. And it's, it's made really interesting fiction. But the context of this passage is the flood. And it talks about people that were standing there, eating and drinking with with one another, and they were swept away. So to be taken, is that good or bad? Be swept away, is that good or bad? That's bad, right? To be left behind is actually the good thing. To be taken in Scripture... Nine times out of ten is the idea of judgment. Those that are swept away, those that are taken away, are the ones that are receiving the judgment of the Lord. And so the picture here is that when the Lord comes back, it's going to be like the flood. Some are going to be taken away in judgment. Others are going to be left behind as their coming king comes and sets up his kingdom in full, not somewhere else, but here. And he's going to, as he restores and renews all things. One more passage, and then we'll draw some conclusions. There's more that we could talk about here, but this is just a sampling. Romans eight, verses nineteen through twenty-four, kind of help help us here as well. It says that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And then the question comes in our minds: Well, why? Why does the creation wait for the revealing of the sons of God? Well, verse twenty. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly, as we await for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In this hope, we were saved. Now that that hope, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In Genesis, uh, a few uh, weeks and months ago, when we were studying Genesis, we talked about how what God had given man to do. Uh, was a, a steward type of a role, a representative type of role. We talked about how when man fell into sin, it wasn't just mankind that was affected, but it was all that was under his representative control. All the creation was affected by the fall, so that the, the land doesn't yield its fruit to us like it should. Uh, so that animals that were created to, to have a, a right relationship with people now flee, because something's going wrong. Uh, Man's sin has infected and affected the world. Well, in Romans 8, you see the reverse of that. And what he's saying is, hey, the creation has been groaning since that time. Not to be destroyed. The creation is not looking forward to being annihilated. It's looking forward to being renewed, to being redeemed. And he's saying, hey, the sons of men are the first fruits. Obviously, people are of utmost importance in God's eyes. And so the salvation of man is the utmost importance. But the reason creation is looking longingly at that and waiting longingly for that is because when they're transformed, it's just a matter of time, creation says, until all of creation is transformed, renewed, and made new again. So there's some scripture passages. Um, one, last, one last kind of clue or piece of the puzzle is just in the language of salvation itself in the scripture. Think of these terms that, that the Lord uses and that Paul uses, that others use, All throughout the scripture to describe the salvation of the Lord. To redeem. Which means to buy back. To liberate from freedom. Not to take away somewhere else, but to set free. To buy back. To renew. It's not to destroy and start over again. It's to make something new again. To reconcile. Reconciliation is not about... Scrapping a relationship and starting a new one somewhere. It's about taking the existing relationship that's, that's wrong and at odds and restoring people to each other. Restore, restoration of a broken relationship. Regeneration. Again, it's a return to life again after being dead. Um, salvation itself means to return to health after sickness. And then maybe the, the biggest one, the incarnation. What we use to talk about the coming of Jesus Here's God that doesn't just say, you know what, y'all messed up my world. I'm starting over somewhere else. But God comes to us. God himself becomes flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, his son. And even that signifies that God cares about this place. He's not left it to itself. He's come to redeem us and the creation that we're stewards and representatives of. So conclusion, and we'll talk again more about some of these specifics, but expectations mean a lot. Um, Jesus is not, as I've heard some mention and, and pray, not in any kind of uh, purposeful way, but just to say they've said, "Jesus, come and thank you. thank you for coming and invading our world." But these passages tell us Jesus is not an invader. He's not somebody who's coming to a foreign land to invade. It's more the picture of Scripture is more of, hey, the rightful king is returning. And he's setting up his kingdom that he had started a long time ago. And that he's been concerned about and working things off for the purpose. He's coming to redeem it, to restore it, to renew it. And for those of us that know him, we can anticipate that coming with excitement. And, joy. and we can put our hands to things today with hopes, with purpose, that what we're doing matters. If we're doing it unto the Lord, if we're doing it for Him, if we're representing and ruling and filling and multiplying the way that He's designed us to, those things will last. Because He's not taking us somewhere else. He's not destroying the things that we're about today. His plan is to renew it. And so we can pray rightly come lord jesus i've enjoyed having time with my kids talking about some of these things they're a lot of times a whole lot more interested in it than i i am and it's 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 not that uh it's i don't say that proudly i wish i had more of a heavenly mindset of a what's to come mindset because i think it would inform my day-to-day actions but they're concerned about it what's going to happen daddy what you know um, when a caterpillar dies, we had a caterpillar we kept. We wanted to see him grow into a butterfly, and he, he didn't make it. Um, and, you know, they're, they're wondering, well, are caterpillars going to be in heaven, Daddy? And so we have great conversations about that. Um, and, you know, Naomi's big thing is she can't wait to, for Jesus to come. And, Daddy, is he really going to come to our house? And I said, well, you know, I have no reason to think he's not. If he comes today, we'd, we'd be able to see him. She's like, well, I can't wait. I'm gonna run up and, and, and give him a hug and snuggle them up. And Nathan's whole thing, uh, and I shared this on Sunday with with our church, is that, well, Daddy, what about roaches? Um, what, what are roaches gonna be like in the in the new heaven and, and new earth? Because Mommy doesn't like those, you know. And we, you know, we use some sanctified imagination. We say, I don't know. They're gonna maybe they'll be transformed. Maybe maybe they'll be part of the creation that's obliterated. I, I don't know, but. His new thing is he's like, well, maybe they'll become butterflies. And I, I love that thinking, whether it's right or wrong. <laughs> I love that thinking because it, it's got an underlying assumption, an underlying expectation that what we see today, there's, it's going to be changed. There's going to be many, many drastic differences, but it's all going to be good differences. It's not an obliteration. There's continuity. It's renewal of what we see um, today so hopefully that gives you a little bit of hope as you go out of here today, a little bit of encouragement that what you see, the good things that you see, are going to be even better uh, in the world to come. And, and the things that are wrong and broken um, are going to be done away with. And so we can, we can truly say and, and with excitement in our voices, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, we do look forward to that day. When uh, Jesus, you come back riding victoriously uh, on your on your horse, your white horse, and uh, coming back to your good creation as a as a conquering king, as a reigning king, to set up the kingdom that you've you've started, that you've inaugurated, to set it up in full. And God, we pray that as we live our lives today, that that ending, that expectation, would shape. Where we spend our time, what we think about, who we invest our lives in people-wise. That you're a God that reconciles and renews and restores. And we pray that we would be about that now. Knowing that you're coming to complete it. Make us a people who work for restoration and renovation and renewal. Help those words be more and more part of our vocabulary. And God, we, we can't wait uh, till you come back and and complete it. So come, Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.